want the money. I want the title. And I can get it because I'm already doing the work. You've thought it. Now it's time to actually believe it. You're listening to Her Next Career Move, the safe space where you'll learn how to stop your mind from career blocking you so you can claim the wealth and work you deserve. I'm Dr. Jasmine Escalera, a career-minded Latina turned Forbes featured coach, and I'm ready to have some candid conversations about how you can build the confidence to step into the career you know you deserve. All right, now let's get going. Hey, everybody, welcome to Her Next Career Move. I'm really excited about this topic today because I'm being joined by a dear friend, one of the first women I followed when I was thinking about starting my own coaching business, and someone I truly look up to as a mentor and someone who just always gives me the best freaking advice. And she's here to talk to you about two of my favorite topics, imposter syndrome, because yes, I definitely had that, and I would say I still do have some remnants of it, and toxic workplaces, because as y'all know, I am so committed to talking to you about my story of toxic workplaces as a way to really show you that it's possible to get out, because that's what we all need to do. So, Lisa, I want to bring you up to the podcast stage. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Jasmine. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, I am just like, I'm kind of getting a little bit emotional because I always, when I think about you, I think about the first time we met, which was when you were doing your TEDx talk and I got to meet you and your husband and also your two amazing daughters and sit in the audience and listen to you both talk about imposter syndrome, your story with imposter syndrome. It was truly a magical experience. Do you remember that moment up there on that stage? Of course I do. It was very kind of a very difficult and weird moment because it was also the beginning of the pandemic. Um, Right. And the audience was empty. You were the only person besides our daughters that, that was in the audience to support us because the pan, this lockdowns were just beginning. And so it was a very touching thing to see you there. And I felt so emotional to see you there because it, it just felt like support that I just couldn't get from anywhere else because of what was happening in the world. And so we thought the thing was going to be canceled, frankly. And, and so we, after preparing for so long, and it was just kind of a very it's a strange moment in time, but you just were like this lovely shining light in that moment and made us feel like someone's listening, someone cares. It's just so nice to have you know, somebody there. And our, you know, our kids were there, but it, it was just nice to have somebody that wanted to be there there. So it was nice. Oh, it was awesome. I loved being there. I remember driving out to Long Island and I just, I was really in awe of your story. And your story is what inspired me to really dig even deeper into my feelings of imposter syndrome. Because at the time I was starting my business and I think, you know, I had imposter syndrome for sure in my career, but then you start your business and that just is a whole nother level of imposter syndrome. So I remember you did your TEDx and then you released your first book and I read the book and I was like, I need more. And then you did a coaching program around the book 
And I joined that and you and your husband changed my life with really understanding how to handle, manage, overcome, ask for support when it comes to imposter syndrome. So I'm really curious, what inspired you to work on this topic and become one of the leading experts in imposter syndrome? I'm so glad I get to, I love hearing like that story again and like really being able to feel like I was a part of your journey. I'm very touched by that. That has been sort of such a central piece for us is really helping amazing, wonderful, magical, you know, people kind of own their full greatness and, and to see you living in yours, it makes us so proud every day. And I think, you know, what led me to being interested in this topic was that I struggled with it myself, that um, in the TEDx talk, I, I talk about my own experience of having imposter syndrome in one of the most difficult moments in my career where it showed up, where it was in a toxic workplace um, with a pretty awful boss who I, I was putting up with for months and months and months and months. And everyone who cared about me was like, just leave, just leave. And I felt paralyzed. I felt like I couldn't leave. I felt like there was nothing out there for me and nobody would want me, even though I had a PhD from Ivy University, all the trappings. I didn't necessarily believe that they belonged to me or anybody would really value them or value me having them. And so um, I stayed there until, you know, and all kinds of bad things were happening. I was being underpaid in in comparison to my counterpart. I was um, being harassed, which I don't really publicly talk about a lot. I was also being embarrassed in public. Um, I used to, I was at the time teaching faculty members how to teach. So I was doing a lot of pedagogical training. Um, and he would embarrass me and, and, you know, tell me to go get coffee in front of the faculty members, which is really difficult because of the hierarchy in academic institutions. And then just one day he said something that just changed my perspective on it all. And we were sitting in a, a staff meeting of all senior leader, women, senior leaders, and there was music playing in the background. And somebody asked, you know, what's that music that's playing? And he said, it's music to soothe the savage breast. And I think in that one moment, when I heard those words come out of his mouth, I just knew he knew what he was doing and that he was oppressing us all and almost, and almost enjoying it. And I just was like, I can't do this to myself anymore. I just can't. And that I went after that meeting, I went back to my office, I closed the door, I called Richard, my partner, and I was like, I got to leave here. And he's like, I've been telling you to do that for months. He's like, get out. And so that weekend, I cleared out my office, cleaned my computer, like put all, put all my books home. And that Monday, I quit the job. And since he was a, you know, a really horrible human being, he like did all the things he, he like cried, he yelled at me, he threatened my future career that I'd never work in education again. It was a really harrowing sort of nightmarish kind of quitting experience. And I remember feeling incredible amounts of anxiety leaving his office and hearing it was like, you know, it was like nine o'clock on a Monday morning and it was quiet. I remember hearing my footsteps hit the linoleum floor as I was walking out of his office and feeling like, oh my God, what did I just do? And I went home and I had a panic attack and I was by myself. Richard was working. And I remember thinking to myself like, oh, this could be it. I could have just messed up my entire life. And um, instead, what I did was I slowly picked up the pieces and I ended up getting another part-time job that was making more than that job was making full-time. I ended up starting my practice. So I love the fact that you also started your business around the same time you were learning about this because it empowered me to also 
dealing with my imposter syndrome empowered me to kind of think about what I wanted, what I needed, the dreams that I really had for myself that I wouldn't let myself express. And I started, you know, writing about imposter syndrome and, and the experience of it. And years later, a publisher saw my writings and asked if I would like to write the book. And so that's how, in, in kind of a nutshell, a little bit of a nutshell, that's how it sort of happened. That's amazing. And your story brings up so many things we can talk about. You know, the feeling when you were saying it was almost kind of like he he knew exactly what he was doing, right? There was that feeling of, oh, you're doing this on purpose. That that feeling of there are vicious people out there in the work world and who are really causing a lot of havoc and trauma on individuals. What also stuck with me was when you were talking about the feeling of, did I just ruin it? Did I just ruin potentially my career? Did I just ruin my path by standing up for yourself? Which is, I think, something that so many of us fear. And it's the reason why we stick around is because we don't want to ruin our careers or we don't want to have to take a misstep or we don't want to have to go into the flooded job market. But then we're putting up with some really really terrible behavior. And we're going to go into toxic workplaces because I want you to drop the DL for everyone and really dive into this with us. But I want to talk about the first book because the first book and your second book, which we're going to dive into as well, what I love about the way you do these books is there's so much information, but it's also a workbook which I really, truly love. When I went through the first book, I learned so much about myself and I learned so many strategies. And I was wondering, as it pertains to imposter syndrome, what are some of these strategies that you feel are most helpful for your clients that you talk about in the book? Yeah, so the workbook process is is so important for us because we wanted people to take the book and actually do something with it to change their lives. One of the things I felt so passionate about after I left that horrible experience was I just didn't want anyone else to have to experience what I experienced. And for as long as I did, because, you know, it wasn't just that experience. It was all the years leading up to that experience and many, many experiences like I under my belt that were sometimes even worse than that. And so I think for me, I, I just really wanted people to have the tools that and I wanted them to be very accessible And so that's what we thought we would do with that book. And it's research-based, but it's really hopefully very accessible that you can read it and use it and have school skills. So I think some of the most important things that I think are in the book are really like, how did you get here? Because I think for me, I was always like, you know, is something wrong with me, like deeply wrong with me that I ended up kind of in these constant chronic toxic situations. And it was not that something was wrong with me. It's just that there was a reason why I kept doing it. And that reason had to do with my own upbringing, my own childhood, my own experiences that I hadn't really worked through and dealt with. And I just kept putting up with a similar type of experience. And so we talk about that early on in the book, like what are some of the common patterns in early childhood that have led you here? Because they help you to understand the common patterns that you get drawn to in toxicity and also kind of create this experience of imposter syndrome. So I think that's really helpful because it makes people feel a sense of sort of empowerment, like this is not a magical thing I don't have control over. I actually can do something about it. If I got here from conditioning, I can uncondition that. And so I do think that's a piece of it. I think also too, really, I think one of the things people love too is recognizing about automatic negative thoughts. And you were just mentioning that, like when you're thinking about quitting and you're like, oh, I don't think I can handle this current job market. It's too tough. Or you think nobody else will want me. 
or you you think like you know this is happening because I'm not I'm not showing up in the right ways or whatever it is. A lot of these are automatic negative thoughts. They're not actually based on what's really happening. They're based on a trigger that is kind of inducing this thought that we have a choice about how we handle it. You know, I love this this quote by Amit Ray that says, "You are not your thoughts. You are the observer of your thoughts." And what we teach people in the book is how to observe that negative thought and do something different with it. Rather than choose to run, rather than choose to be frozen or fear things, actually face the thought, challenge it, look for evidence. Like, is it true? Where's the data? Can someone tell me that I, that I am stupid, that I'll never get a job? Like, where's that data that, that's, that this automatic negative thought is true? And can I counter it with something reality-based and real about what's happening in the circumstance, which will empower me to do something good and healthy for myself? And so that piece, I think another piece is also really finding community. Community is so important. We're often doing this alone, which can actually stifle our ability to actually take action. And so really a lot of those pieces are really about actioning a lot of these really practical things that can really change the game. I love that. I really loved when I had to do the exercise of the imposter syndrome story and diving deeply into that background component. Where are these things really coming from? I am a firm believer in that once you have the awareness, you can really create the change, but you have to take the time to do these reflective exercises. And that's why I loved the workbook and I loved the group because we went even deeper into it. And I think what um, what the group really helped me understand was that I wasn't alone. And the book helped me do that because it also helped me ask other people if they were going through that too. And so that's so validating. And you mentioned community as well, which I'm a huge proponent of. I know you are too. So this is so valuable. Now, I want to take our switch because we've both been in toxic workplaces with toxic bosses. And I feel like we need to dive into that and how these things all interplay together. But I was wondering, let's start with how would you define a toxic workplace? Like what's your definition of it? And how can we spot it? Yeah, I think toxic workplace is any place that asks you to be doing things that are unhealthy for you, whether it's taking you know, somebody yelling at you, or whether it's working extraordinary hours, or whether it's kind of stifling your growth, anything that's kind of causing you to kind of choose unhealthy things, be in an unhealthy place, um, I think as a, as a toxic work environment. And so I, I think the way you can identify it is you typically don't feel great in these environments. You typically feel less than you feel kind of under a microscope that you're never doing anything right. You can you can often feel heavily scrutinized. And so it's often a place where you don't feel very good or very happy. You know, people, you get those Sunday scaries and you're afraid to go to work. And so all of these places can indicate that, that you're maybe dealing with a toxic work environment. Yeah, I can, I can 110% resonate with that. I actually remember being on the train, going to work and having panic attacks because I hated going in so much. And I love that, that saying what you mentioned about, it just doesn't feel good because internally we know it's just that we don't want to face it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's scary to face because we have to think about what's next then. Like if this workplace is not working out, it means we have to kind of pull ourselves together and it can be really hard. Like when we've been beat down in a toxic work environment, we often don't have a lot of reserve to get into a job search. We don't have a lot of confidence in ourselves. We don't have a lot of like, I got this. We're just sort of like really defeated. I remember when I was in grad school, I had a really toxic mentor and I was working for him and I was walking home one day, like a zombie. 
and an older grad student ran into me and she was like, you look awful. Um, and I just, I, I was like, I probably do. I haven't looked at myself in the mirror and God knows how long I just really stopped like caring. And it, it just sort of reminds you sometimes of how much these toxic workplaces can really deplete you from taking the next steps forward, which require energy, which require a sense of, of self and confidence. And so I think that's the piece that can be really difficult about being in these toxic workplaces and taking the next move forward. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I really, really try to get people to understand is a toxic work environment causes a lot of other things, like a lack of confidence, which you were talking about, seeing yourself as unworthy. It can really cause trauma. And I'm guessing that it can perpetuate imposter syndrome. So, can you talk a little bit about the correlation between? toxic work environments and imposter syndrome? Sure. So when you have imposter syndrome, you have a higher likelihood of being organizationally loyal. So you tend to stay in an organization longer than most um, because of some of these things that we tell ourselves, oh, nobody else will want us. Like we often kind of worry about the job market. Imposter syndrome is correlated with a reduced knowledge of the job market. And so we often know less about the job market, even though we think we know it's really bad. We always know it's really bad out there. That's what we always feel like we know. But we actually don't often know the market very well. And, and the imposter syndrome keeps us from learning it or knowing it or gathering the information because we're just like, oh, it's got to be bad. So I'm not even going to bother looking. So there's a lot of things that it does for us that actually create this inability or difficulty with leaving an, an institution. And we also have a tendency to be drawn to kinds of toxic leaders, narcissistic leaders, codependent work dynamics, because those are often the dynamics that we grew up with in childhood. And so those dynamics are really familiar to us. So a boss that you know wants us to prove ourselves all the time to them is not, is not unfamiliar because we may have had a parent that always wanted us to kind of continue like to prove ourselves and kind of show we were kind of excelling at all moments and never had an opportunity for failure or struggle. And so we're very familiar with these dynamics and trying to prove ourselves, trying to be good enough to try to strive to get attention from people who don't want to give us attention. So a lot of these kinds of dynamics get replicated in the workplace and it makes us kind of stay in these places longer because they're familiar to us. And we believe sometimes that there are no other dynamics, but that's not true. Yeah, that's so interesting. It's almost that loyalty piece. You become more loyal to the toxic work environments than almost loyal to yourself. Yes. Yeah, and we know it well because we've had to do we've had to be disloyal to ourselves as children, as teenagers and kind of do what other people wanted us to do even if it wasn't what we wanted for ourselves. So this this interpersonal disloyalty, like knowing how to not do what we want for ourselves but do what somebody else wants from us is very common and very familiar to us. We are pros at, at kind of pushing down our own needs and dreams and wants and desires. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm curious, do you see that more with women? Is it a cultural thing? Because coaching women of color, that is one of the biggest things is putting yourself first. And it seems as though it can be very cultural. Um, as women, society tells us we have to take care of everybody else. So what's the gender or even racial correlation when it comes to imposter syndrome? Interestingly, there isn't any. Um, so you, know, you hear a lot of times women have more imposter syndrome than men. It's not true. Um, we find it be equivocal in men and women that, um, that we both experienced. I think because it was initially discovered or discussed with women in the, in the late 1970s, people often think that that's 
that's what's continued in the research and it really hasn't. It's been shown in men as well. I just think that oftentimes research shows it looks differently in men and women. And so for women, what they sh- what it shows is that they actually can be very counterphobic. So they actually face the thing that they fear, but it means that they're triggered more often for their imposter syndrome. So they're experiencing it at greater frequency because they face the trigger. Where with men, and this is like cisgender men, what they find is that they tend to be aimed toward mastery. So they want to make sure that they master something. So they take less risks. They affiliate with peers that are less capable than them and underperform. And so as a result, they may feel less tension around their imposter syndrome because they're facing it less often. And so no gender group experiences it less or more at this point. And the same is sort of true with race. There's There's been no correlation between any racial group experiencing it significantly more or less. There have been some really interesting findings, though, about intra-race racial. So it, within the race racial groups, what are they sort of seeing as correlates for the individual racial groups? So for Black people, for example, they have found that when you experience imposter syndrome and you experience an episode of discrimination, you have higher levels of depression. So you have a higher experience of depression. They have also found for Black, Latinx, and um, Asian folk, that when we have imposter syndrome, um, it can be a greater predictor of psychological distress and mental health distress than our minority status. So the impact of imposter syndrome is tremendous um, for us when we are people of color. Um, we also talk about, and women, we talk about the, what is experienced, we call the double bind of imposter syndrome, this experience that you experience imposter syndrome internally And then externally, you're getting messages like, maybe you don't belong here. Maybe you're not good enough. Maybe your identity got you here. And as a result of that, it reinforces these notions of imposter syndrome that aren't true, but are getting an actual voice in the external world. And it can be harder to overcome it when you're getting that external reinforcement for it. And what the research shows is that um, community becomes incredibly important, especially along that identity line that helps you fight those external voices and not internalize them as belonging to you. So the research is actually quite interesting and it's really blossoming in the area of gender and race. And, you know, that's what makes me really sad when I see all these like horrible, like mythologies that go around in social and saying, oh, it's imposter syndrome isn't real. And like oppression causes imposter syndrome. We just get rid of oppression, then we get rid of imposter syndrome. These, while oppression does benefit from it and does sustain imposter syndrome, it is not the cause of it. And I think if we're all waiting for, our systems to change tomorrow, we're going to be waiting a long time to really to experience what we need to have changed in order for us to feel free of it. Oh man, I love this discussion so much, Lisa. Thank you so much for breaking that down because you're bringing up a lot of great conversation here, especially the conversation around is imposter syndrome even real? I remember when that question was raised, it actually blew my mind because when I found you, I found an answer because there were years where I felt as though I was lacking confidence. I wasn't showing up for myself. And I really, I remember getting into Yale and telling everybody that, oh, it must be because, you know, they needed a brown girl here. Like I couldn't own any one of my achievements. And so when I found you and I learned about imposter syndrome, I felt like I had an answer. I felt like I had hope. I felt like I had a way to be able to beat it because then I could have strategies. And I think it's so important that we own the fact that we're human and we're not going to be perfect and we're going to have things that we have to work through that are in 
external things we need to work through. Yes. So I'm so glad you brought that up. And thank you so much for mentioning the correlation with men and with women and saying, hey, everybody really is affected by this. Because when you talk about community, it makes it even more prevalent for us to really be seeking community as everyone, not just as just one type. Yes. Yeah, and about 70% of us experience it. So it's a very common experience, although we can feel very alone in it. And I'm so glad you you share your experience about what it was like to hear for the first time that this existed and to be able to kind of understand that it was kind of changeable, remedy, you could remedy it. Because I think oftentimes these messages about the fact that it doesn't exist, it's all oppression, really disempower us from actually doing the individual work because you're in a perfect example of how, look, the the systems are still racist and sexist and problematic in every way, but you're living very differently in those systems. And that's what we always teach is that, you know, yes, we want to work on the systems and fight the systems. I'm a big believer in systemic change, but we also, it's not the either or, it's the both and. We need to do our individual work and work on changing the system. But while the system's still dysfunctional, you can change and operate very differently within that system. Oh, man, mic drop there. We could end it right here because that is exactly (laughs) that's absolutely wonderful that you said that is if we wait for everything external to us to change, we're going to be waiting for a hell of a long time. Yes, we will. Are you ready to land the job you want at a company that will value you as a professional of color, making up to double your salary? Then you need to join the Empowered Hire, my job search program and community built to help you do just that. We are waiting to support you, to guide you, and to empower you on your journey and path to landing the right job for you so that you're not surviving in your career, you're truly thriving. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about the Empowered Hire and join us today. So we can absolutely empower ourselves to navigate the system better. If other people are navigating the system, why can't we navigate the system? Like we can do it. Yes, we, we can. And we can do it to our benefit and not necessarily conforming into people we are not. And I think that's a really key piece of this. Like, you know, we can navigate the system and still be our authentic individual selves with our culture and our race and our, our gender all as a part of who we are authentically. We don't have to hide that. We don't have to become someone else. And because that, that raises like this whole thing I hear a lot of is like, fake it till you make it. Do not do that. Do not fake it till you make it. We're aiming to being your authentic, real, true self and being successful in that. And as you said earlier, which is human, makes mistakes, is flawed and is still beautiful. Absolutely. I love that. Yes. And so what do we do to make sure that we land in those places where we can be that authentic, beautiful, amazing self that we are? Are there specific things that you tell people to look out for or ways that you tell people to perhaps job search to really focus on the place you can land where you can be you? Yeah. And so in the new book, we talk a lot about sort of being able to understand your particular trigger points, the kinds of things that seduce you into toxic work environments. Things like people saying, oh, we only accept nothing but the best. You And everyone here works here to, and hard to prove themselves. And, you know, like you look for sort of like understanding what are your trigger points? What are the kinds of behaviors? Like, you know, we operate here as a family. 
these particular dynamics around narcissism, around codependence that are really popular and happen a lot and often said very casually in interviews and engagements with people within the organization that you're going to have a higher alert for because they often signify problematic engagement and behavior dynamics that you don't want to be a part of. We're looking for is to find places that really appreciate people and their individuality, that kind of support psychological safety, that can tolerate conflict and difference, that really know how to be able to support people through their development when they're struggling and know how to help some, somebody rise in those difficult moments and not see that as like, you, you're just not capable of being here. So really looking for the kinds of environments that support growth, that support healthy psychological functioning, that support healthy dynamics, um, that you're looking for those kinds of languages. And we talk about it very specifically in the book, the kinds of things you're looking for, the kinds of things you want to hear, and really learning how to program yourself to attend to the things you don't want to be a part of. I love that. Yeah, it makes me it makes me think about also feeling empowered during the process to ask the questions that you need to ask to assess whether they are going to be your triggers or to assess if this organization is going to trigger you. So to feel confident enough to ask those questions. But another thing I was thinking when you were speaking was listening and listening and feeling into how does this make me feel to even hear it? Yeah. I mean, I think when I was back in the day when I was struggling with my imposter syndrome really intensely, I don't think I ever really listened for what was happening. I never sort of asked myself, do I feel comfortable with the interview process? Do I feel comfortable with this manager? Do I feel comfortable with the way they're talking? I was just like, they want to give me a job. I'll take it. I never negotiated my salary before then. I never really felt like I had any right to decide that I was going to start two weeks later or like, I never have felt like I had rights. And I think approaching your interview process with, I have rights. And I have a right to kind of understand whether this is a place that I that I want to work at too is incredibly important. It really orients you very different differently towards an interview process. Absolutely, yeah. And I, you're reminding me of myself not asking the questions, not negotiating, and that feeling of, well, I'm getting a job, I'm getting a 401k, I'm getting the paycheck, I'm getting the health insurance. I should just be grateful. Yep. Yeah. Now, I want to know for those of us who are listening, who are leaders and who really want to take advantage of this conversation and focus on being the best possible leaders they can be, do you have any advice for leaders on how to create that healthy, safe environment? Yeah. I mean, I first would say if you're dealing with imposter syndrome, like do your work and do your kind of conscious work on dealing with your own kind of imposter syndrome because imposter syndrome can really affect leadership. For example, Leaders with imposter syndrome can really micromanage, can model overworking, can have um, difficulties representing their team's wins and their own wins. And so it's really important. It really shows up in the way that you lead. So it's so important to do your own work on it fundamentally. And then I would think it's so important to be conscious of the culture you're developing on your team. And so does your team feel safe to be who they are on the team? Do they feel safe to dissent? Do they feel like they can bring as much of themselves as they want to work? Do you allow for different styles of work and different ways of kind of working on something? Are, are you invested in their development? Do you know what they want to do with their future? And are you helping them get there, even if it's not where you're currently working, right? Because I'm a big believer in, in that leaders really 
it should be developing people in this current moment, but it doesn't have to be to stay at that institution forever. Um, that the career life is long and you never know when that direct report may help you out too. So I think it's really important to have these really collaborative experiences with a direct report where you're, you're kind of really contributing to their development and growth and creating a space, even if the rest of the organization is toxic, your team doesn't have to be. Yeah, absolutely. That you can, I almost kind of call it like the the subculture that you create for your team. So is there a way that even if your environment is a certain way that you can still be that supportive, safe individual for your team members and that they see you as that person that they can truly go to and be authentic around? Yes. Yeah. And it can provide a really, you know, like you're saying a safe harbor and even a really difficult system uh, and it can do something wonderful sometimes to spread that outward, even sometimes within the institution itself. But it, people take those kinds of experiences with them in the ways that they lead. So I think it's really important to recognize that they often will model the healthy behavior as well as the unhealthy behavior. So it's so important to be conscious of that. Yeah, I love that. And I'm going to ask you a question selfishly because I want to grow my business and I want to have employees, but I'm sure there are people here listening that will also benefit from this. I'm curious, how can you as a leader pinpoint whether someone has imposter syndrome, might be going through imposter syndrome, and how do you support them through that? Yeah, well, typically what you see when you're a leader is you see somebody who, one of two things, they're either working super hard and overworking and they're just the best employee, you just love them so much, but oftentimes they're doing a lot of self-sacrificial stuff, they're not taking care of themselves, they don't take compliments well. They really struggle to see themselves as valuable. And so that can be an, a big indicator. The other thing is you see somebody who's truly capable, but does a lot of self-sabotage. Um, and they kind of like don't deliver in the ways you know they're capable of. And you're like, what's going on here? Um, and oftentimes it's because their performance anxiety is so intense, it causes them to procrastinate and they end up kind of creating the self-fulfilling prophecy that they don't belong or they're not good enough. So that you can often see that. And I think one of the things that I have seen in my work over the years is that one of the most powerful moments for many people is when their manager has said to them, I think you might be struggling with imposter syndrome. And then they explain what it is before they start to freak out and be, think that they're being told that they're an imposter. But you know, you want to kind of really tell them, like, this, this is what it tends to look at. Have you had that experience? Because oftentimes they have felt very cared for by that manager and felt like that manager sees that, that they are great and they just don't believe that about themselves. And so this whole article that came out from HBR saying, stop telling women that they have imposter syndrome. No, if you think somebody is struggling with it, tell them and tell them with compassion. Tell them like, I think you're amazing. And I think that you don't think you're amazing. And, and like, there's help for this. Like you, you can actually, you can actually live in your capacity and your greatness, but having imposter syndrome makes that difficult. But that moment can be instrumental in changing someone's trajectory. Absolutely. We have to all support each other as kind humans. Like, can we bring the kindness back? And if we see that someone yes. is struggling, what does, it, what does it matter if you say it's imposter syndrome? It gives people an anchor, something to really look into that can be so 
freaking helpful. So I love that. I love that so much. So Lisa, you have been amazing. I want to ask you one more question because I really love to ask people this question. I think about this often. My, my younger self, I'm always doing inner child work and, you know, trying to tend to little Jasmine. And I do think back to my younger career self and all the things I would have loved to have said to her. to give her some positivity. So I'm curious, what would you tell your younger career self? What advice would you give her? What a great question. I believe in this too. There's a whole section on the new book about inner child work. And I think, you know, I, w- I would have told her like, you deserve this. You're amazing. And you can have what you want. It's okay to believe that that's possible. And you don't have to put up with crap from all these shitty bosses. Um, it's possible to kind of have what you want and not have to to suffer. And so I think I would have told her that she didn't have to suffer, you know, that she could actually have what she wanted. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm so excited to dive into that inner child work in the book because I'm such a proponent of it. Please tell us the names of the books and just give us some tidbits on where we can get them because I'm going to advocate for everyone to get these books They are freaking amazing. And they've been transformative for me. Oh, thank you so much for saying that, Jasmine. So the first book is called Own Your Greatness. Um, It came out in 2020. It's really a book to kind of do the intrapersonal, the the within-person work to kind of overcome your imposter. And we've seen great results on it. We've uh, over the years, we've been able to kind of show that it can reduce imposter by 30% in 14 weeks. So it's real data-driven kind of stuff in that book. Um, second book was really developed. It's called Your Unstoppable Greatness. Um, it was really developed really for the residual issues that we saw appearing when people actually had done the work on the in- individual stuff. There were additional things that we saw kind of popping up that we wanted to address around kind of people's dreams and their aspirations and, and burnout and perfectionism, as well as leadership and organizational culture. Um, that both books can be found on like all their major booksellers, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, you can get them everywhere. The first book is in a variety of formats. I would suggest if you get the first book in like uh, audio format or in Kindle that you you also buy the hard copy version or you buy a notebook to deal with it because I want you to do the exercise. You have to do the work of the book. Um, it's what makes the difference, not just reading. It. It's not a read. And so, um, yeah, they're pretty available everywhere. So. Yeah, I would highly suggest that to get the hard copy because I remember going through it on my own and then doing it within the group and I like sketched the hell out of that thing. So yeah. it's I agree you need <laughs> you need to get the hard copy book. I'm going to pr- be a proponent of that. Well, thank you so much Lisa. And where can we find you to get daily deets? Like where do I get my daily dose of Lisa? <laughs> So on Instagram, I'm at Dr. Orbe Austin, and I'm pretty active on LinkedIn too. And I just started a YouTube. Um, so that's that's just up and running brand new. Um, and my website. Uh, yeah. Oh, I, awesome. I didn't know you started a YouTube. I'm going to subscribe. <laughs> it's baby YouTube. <laughs> oh, awesome. I've been thinking about doing a YouTube as well. And then I'm like, relax. <laughs> yes. It's, relax. It's, it's, there's a lot going on. It's just a lot to do all this stuff. Oh, I love it. Lisa, you are absolutely amazing. You are such a beautiful soul, you and your Aww. husband. I feel the same and way I just about you. Say, Oh, thank you. I just want to say thank you for joining us and dropping all of this information. Everyone, please go and follow Lisa. 
Richard. They are wonderful humans and just give the best advice and go out there and buy both books. We're going to put all of the links in the show notes. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. So many gems were dropped here, so you may have to listen again and also follow Lisa. All right, y'all. Till next time. That's all for today's show. Now that you know what you know, it's your move. So girl, get out there and make it. And if you have suggestions for topics you'd like me to talk about in the next episode, perhaps something that might help you get unstuck, then let me know by sending a DM on our Instagram page, at hernextcareermove. Don't forget to leave us a rating. And subscribe to the show to support our movement to flood the work world with dope women of color ready to take it over.